When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello, movie truthers. Welcome to this week's episode of Truth and Movies. I'm Leila Latif. I am Leslie Pitt. And I'm Steph Green. On the show this week, hedge fund offices prove the worst place to fall in love in fair play. 50 years on from the original, the devil still makes little girls his playground in Exorcist Believer. And on Film Club, women in the workplace may be sexy, but they sure are bad at their jobs. In disclosure. All coming up in Truth and Movies, a little white eyes podcast. So, Leslie, it's been it's it's been a while. Last had you on for Grey Man and Where the Crow Dads Sing. What a, yeah. <laughs> that was a fun day that we had. Um, a lot has changed. You've had a baby. You've it, like a lot of exciting things have happened. But work wise, what have you been up to? Uh, so, work wise, I've kind of well since since having a baby, I don't think I've been doing as much of anything um, as I used to. I think I've just been kind of trying to find something to write about. And doing the the erotic thriller podcast, doing fatal attractions when I can, writing for set the tape when I can, or anything. But in terms of like actual work, I haven't been at it as much as I have been in the past. You know, <laughs> you've got a third person to look after now, so therefore they just don't have the chance. Uh, yeah. And then it turns out when you pitch publications being just like, has anybody made a film about how working parenthood is hard? You're not the first person that's had that thought. (laughs) No. I mean, I turned around to um, David Jenkins uh, the other day and kind of semi sort of said, I've got this idea. It's kind of a pitch. It's kind of a personal essay. But it was all the same kind of, look, I'm a dad and I've got a kid and movies and just a, a mesh of stuff. And I've just, and it's, I think it's far too personal an essay. So I think I might just blog it and see where it goes from there as opposed to any sort of uh, pitching to anybody. <laughs> well, yeah. I mean, with these like very personal things, sometimes it is difficult to put them out into the world. But I'm, 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 I hope you write it. I'm, I'm look forward to reading it. Oh, yeah, we'll see. <laughs> uh, and Steph, Steph, you have been writing for Little White Lies, I think, um, well, like two two years at least now. But it's your first time on the podcast, which is very Yay! exciting. <laughs> yeah, very excited to be on the pod. And I think all those hours I've spent watching terrible erotic thrillers on a Saturday night while beautiful people make love to saxophone soundtracks has been worth it so because i've been invited onto this episode so i'm very happy about it but i i love it. i remember talking to you once about like your path into film criticism it was because you started out just being very into french cinema is that right and then you just sort of spiraled yeah i mean i studied french at university and did you know a course in french film and then did another 
course in French film and got very into it. So I think it's, you know, very lame to be like, oh, yes, the Nouvelle Vague got me in <laughs> to the big screen. But it really did, you know, 400 Blows, still one of my favourite films. I don't really know how I got from the 400 Blows to erotic thrillers. So I might need to, you know, work that out somehow. But um, yeah, I kind of went from there, started writing, you know, for my own blog. And it just slowly, slowly, you know, over the past five, six years developed from there. I mean, like, Leslie, you've obviously got a podcast and you, you guys do screenings, all kind of related to the erotic theatre. But can you guys think of, like, what your kind of, what was the first one that you saw that kind of most made you think, like, this is a genre I want to dive into? Wild Things. <laughs> it had to be Wild Things. Oh, my. I love how many twists there are in Wild Things. There's, like, 17 in a row. I mean, the thing I like about it is not just the twists, it's the fact that the twists work. It's the film that... I would recommend to most people if they were going to try, like, in terms of accessibility to this whole idea, because it's just so... It doesn't take itself seriously, and it's kind of big and large and just ridiculous. But it knows it's ridiculous, and directed by the... uh, director of Henry Portrait of a Serial Killer as well. There was an element of things that I like in there, so I kind of got into film via horror films when I was younger. So finding out that this guy did this, I was like, okay, well, I'll give it a go. And it was the most surreal thing I've ever seen. And Bill Murray and crocodiles and <laughs> and Swamp Marsh and all sorts. It's just, there was something about that and the kind of uh, soap opera stars in it and, and everything about it that just screams to me that more people need to watch it, even though it's actually quite popular. So that's the one I would kind of bring up as a as a film to, to, to for anyone to watch i i remember watching that film and not even really knowing anything about how like acting worked understood that like oh i can see a series of nudity clauses where this person has <laughs> clearly agreed to side and this back this front this this one's gone full frontal but it you know it's like so clearly precisely choreographed based on what was in a contract it's like the expendables of um <laughs> of erotic thrillers in that way where clearly people have just turned around and said well i don't want to be doing this and i, I don't want to be doing this or i've been i've done something like this before so therefore you know it all kind of plays out in that one very very uh memorable scene <laughs> Memorable indeed. Uh, Steph, what about you? What was your sort of intro into this sort of crazy, thrilling, erotic world? Gosh, I can't really remember what my first one would have been, but I think the strongest memory, maybe one of the the very first ones I watched was Brandon Palmer's Body Double. And I just, you know, maybe that is the link. Maybe I sort of started to watch some Hitchcock and then I saw lots of people saying, oh, if you like Hitchcock, watch this crazy guy's films. Maybe that's how the trajectory happened from sort of classic cinema to, to this. You know, it was beautifully made. There were split screens. These beautiful women are dancing. The drill, the the the, the Pino Donaggio score, the way that the film just becomes another different film halfway through. There was so much happening and it was so ridiculous, but so beautifully made. And I just, I think it just really like typified the whole genre for me, how it can be ludicrous and improbable. And I don't know, I hate the word problematic, but let's throw that in there. But it can still be this really interesting commentary on sex and desire and men and women and the society that envelops them. And I just think maybe from there, maybe I peaked too early because the rest are not as good as that film. But uh, yeah, I think it was Body Double. 
I think you need that problematic aspect in these films. Um, I find it quite sad and, and tragic that we're so kind of whitewashing so much of this stuff because it might offend someone or it might feel or it might feel wrong or anything else or anything about it instead of actually putting something in there that will get people talking. I think we might kind of lean on this later on in, in a lot of the films that we're talking about today. But I think if it, if it wasn't for someone like De Palma making these things problematic, I think by him doing certain things, Things, he makes it easier for us, people like us, to talk about these sort of things as opposed to this kind of self-censorship and um, botanical way of, of dealing with stuff now where it's like, no, we can't say this, we can't do that, we can't do this, we can't show this. I think it's quite interesting to have an element of something problematic in there. I remember we did um, Pacific Heights on the podcast and I really didn't like um, Matthew Modine's character. Is that the one with the, with the tenant from hell? Yes, yes, right. <laughs> so it's Tenet from Hell, and he is, there's something about these yuppies in, in distress mm-hmm. thing that was already kind of annoying, but there's this kind of underlying bigotry that Matthew Modine's character has all the way through the film, mm-hmm. and it really got my back up, and I remember just being really, really frustrated with him, but then I realised that's actually a really good performance and it's it gives you something there. It gives you a bit of an edge. It gives him an interesting character. Otherwise, he'd be very boring and bland. And I think he, he really kind of grasps onto something and gives you something to pull apart and extrapolate. And you, you kind of side, you're supposed to be siding with him, but you're not completely sympathetic. And that really, really got me engaged into the movie. And I wonder if I would how I feel about watching it again, especially after watching Modine in like lots of Nolan films and stuff like that and seeing what he's like and seeing his body of work. I find that you kind of need that thing. It's just maybe it's something that uh, an, an actor can have a hook on or something else like that. But I just, I just found it, I find that part of it sometimes really interesting to have in these type of movies. I completely agree. And I think when a lot of contemporary filmmakers try and be edgy in a like, triggered much kind of way it it kind of falls flat and then when you look back at these films yes they're pushing boundaries but they're always in a way that is trying to kind of pull out that nugget of truth in a situation between in in gender roles and I think that's why it works in a way in the way that it does I mean Oscar Wilde attended a lynching so I'm I'm not going to entirely say that he was he was right on every count but I always think of his quote of like everything in the world is about sex except for sex which is about power (laughs) I think we're going to get on to that later in a minute really Um, (laughs) but yeah I I think there is an element of that in there I do find it I always find it quite interesting you know we started with um, basic instinct and fatal attractions and there is this element of especially in basic instinct there is this element of power and I I, I've always said it when I've written about um, Basic Instinct, when I talked about it on the podcast. I think the best thing about Basic Instinct is Sharon Stone being the smartest person in the room mm-hmm. at all points at all times. And then you kind of look at the making of and her kind of complex feelings about making the film, how she felt about Verhoeven and some of the things he did in order to get what he wanted to get out of it and and everything. But then she also turns around and says, well, I look at the box office and I think we did okay." And it's just this kind of really interesting kind of dichotomy and and contrast of her turning around going, I did use, use my sexuality in here and I got something out of it, but also at what cost? Well, I think concern of what happened on screen comes in as an issue for her. From what I understand of Sharon Stone, she did not believe that that 
upskirt shot was going to be used. Yeah. Which I think is a different... Um, and then obviously, I guess that's that that's one of the issues of gender within this, where it's just like nobody was like considering Michael Douglas as not being able to kind of do a wide range of roles. I mean, he's, I think he's got two Oscars and stuff. And, you know, Sharon Stone has spoken a lot about how she was, uh, you know, really typecast and not considered to be like a proper actress after yeah. after being in the same film. I, I always find it so, so difficult because I think, it is still her best role. There's this element of Verhoeven do, kind of doing that repeatedly, obviously in Showgirls as well. And I think he really borders on something where he kind of gets on, he's on the edge of something with um, Elizabeth Berkeley and Sharon Stone, but then afterwards they can't really do anything ever again. And it's really sad because you kind of see in there that I think he gets something out of them and he gets something out of the, the kind of sensuality that they can both bring. But also I always still feel that it's at a cost. Well, it's an erotic thriller conundrum, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I don't want to be too kind of because obviously I'm I'm the bloke in this, and but it's just like I always I I find that aspect of it fascinating all the time. It's one of the reasons why I think we we now have a look at stuff like intimacy coordinators, so we can kind of still extrapolate those kind of powerful performances but also keep other aspects of stuff in check as well. But I don't know. I don't make films. So. Well, no, it's Michaela Cole's thing of like, you can, you know, reenact traumatic events without being traumatised yourself. Isn't that a wonderful thing? Uh, Steph, what about you? I mean, obviously this, ex, you know, as a sort of genre, but also just like eroticism exists outside of, you know, the Hollywood 80s and 90s era how, how do you feel like it's evolved we obviously had like you know the pre-haze code post-haze code but then you know europe being a lot more willing to be erotic and, and now it feels like a bit more puritanical is that fair to say yeah i mean i won't rehash the conversation that we all keep having about sex disappearing off the screen and i should really clarify that sex is disappearing off the big screen but not necessarily the small you know sex is thriving on television in many ways but it, it's definitely falling off of the big screen but talking about erotic thrillers specifically they sort of died a slow death as we edged towards the millennium and then films from the early noughties we had adrian lyons unfaithful which was wildly successful diane lane got an oscar nomination which is very rare for an erotic thriller but then after that you've got the things like meg ryan in in the cup was absolutely lambasted to the high heavens for her performance and that was so good it's such a good performance it's one of my favorite films but you know that that there's interviews where she's you know kind of being told off for shedding her images of america's sweetheart and you know from then there's not really been many films unless like you say coming out of europe there are some great european erotic thrillers of recent times there's stranger by the lake which is an amazing French erotic thriller. There's another French erotic thriller starring um, Vanessa Parody set in the world of gay porn in the 80s. I don't know if you guys remember the name because it's escaped me, but there's lots of, you know, incredible films like that. Unfortunately, attempts to revive the genre haven't been very successful. You've got um, Adrian Lyons' Deep Water, which I didn't think was terrible, but it certainly made absolutely no cultural imprint whatsoever, despite the whole... Ben Affleck, Anna de Armas of it all. There is still, you know, The Voyeurs is is a really good erotic thriller. I'm not sure how much of an impact it had, but it was, you know, a successful, sexy film that was made safely, you know, all actors feeling safe, but still being very sexy with a great, fun, thrilling plot. It can happen, but it was a genre that really ruled the roost in the 90s. You know, it was one of the most lucrative films that filmmakers could make. It was 
number one on the VHS sales and rentals. I mean, I'm sure you can <laughs> figure out why. I really hope those VHSs were, you know, cleaned up before they were returned. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah you say um be kind rewind on my uh local video one so it's like be kind rewind and also please give a white <laughs> yes <laughs> you know they're, they're they are not as as popular and lucrative as they used to be but you know we can live in hope that they are reborn but i i kind of almost disagree and the reason why i disagree is because we you have 365 days which is oh, a ter- <laughs> terrible terrible um a series of movies but become very very popular on netflix nearly every time they kind of got released then you had well before then you had 50 shades of gray which became a, a popular series of movies they did make money they did make bank there was i mean a- they made money leslie but we're talking about fatal attraction being like the number one global blockbuster of the year yeah but i think we we've kind of moved now towards studios turning around and believing that adults aren't the the people that actually pay for movie tickets it's it's children that's why we have everything that we have here we've had a kind of not dumbing down but a kind of arrested development for the last 15 years of just constant constant franchise movies and people arguing about star wars and seeing these movies get kind of topics shoehorned into them but then everyone gets really upset and goes oh my i don't want any politics in my space operas or what have you um and i think (laughs) i think but that's my twitter bio i don't want any politics (laughs) in my space operas but i think i I think you know that's a big big aspect of it i think 20 odd years ago i remember being working at a cinema when in the cut came out and it didn't make that much money yes but at least it was it had it had a screen, if not two screens, and it had people go, you know, people going in to watch it. Nowadays, you you know that that mid budget film has gone, and because a mid budget film has gone, therefore you can't really make anything that kind of has that lasting imprint. I don't think oh, it's gone to gone to streaming or whatnot. So I think it can. I think it can be done. I think it can be done. And yeah, I don't think. Fifty Shades had as much as an impact, but I think it did have an impact. I think it did turn around and say, "Look, we're still here." I don't think the money it made was not to be—it wasn't anything to be kind of sniffed at. I just think you know we need to live by the rule where if you want filth, you go to France. <laughs> You—you've you, got directors like Francois was on doing Double Lover, Swimming Pool. You've got L, you know, yeah, Paul Verhoeven's L. You know, Knife and Heart is the the name of the film I forgot earlier with uh, Vanessa Paradis. So I think we would just got to hop in a plane to France, guys. Yes. What was it that Bong Joon-ho said of like, if you can overcome the hurdle of the... The one-inch barrier. Then there's so many sexy thrills ahead. <laughs> exactly. Um, but not even with a one-inch barrier of uh, subtitles ahead, we should get into the first movie of the week. It's a Chloe Dormont's fair play. Join our community of film lovers by becoming a Little White Lies member and receive exclusive perks and an insider's view into the world of Little White Lies while directly supporting our independent film journalism. Search Little White Lies membership via your search engine and click through to our SteadyAQ page for a detailed breakdown of the plans. Now on to the movies. An unexpected promotion at a cutthroat hedge fund firm pushes a newly engaged couple's relationship to the brink. 
So, Steph, I mean, this was labelled an erotic thriller. It was like one of the buzziest titles out of Sundance, which was like in January of this year. Would you classify this as an erotic thriller? Was it erotic? Was it thrilling? Well, I think in order to answer your question, I need to kind of break down, you know, what is an erotic thriller? And it's a really tough question. And lots of people have, you know, different ideas on how to define it. I think, you know, some people say it needs to have a thematic basis in illicit romance or erotic fantasy with the characters in this film you've got Emily and Luke played by Phoebe Dunover and Alden Ehrenreich and I think you know they're not meant to be together because they're colleagues and that's against the rules of their company is this basis for you know a real illicit romance I don't know you know if they get found out they maybe would need to get a new job. I don't know if the stakes are that high for it to be, you know, a yeah. real sense of... They're also earning so much money. Like, it's yeah. like, like, it's I not think, like nobody's going <laughs> to... I think, you know, they'll be able to get another job. And then, you know, the idea of danger and pleasure being in close proximity, sort of, you know, there's there's a scene, which I'm sure we'll talk about later on in the film, where Emily is put in a position of of sexual danger by her partner. Is she feeling pleasure at that moment? I'm not sure. And then you've also got the stock characters of an erotic thriller, the femme fatale, the homme fatale, which you also have. Are those stock characters present in this film? I'm not too sure. Is there a full guy? I'm not sure he quite qualifies um, the, the male lead. And then also, when you look at an erotic thriller, you think about the style, you think about those noirish elements. And the way that this film is shot, I think, is maybe lacking in that kind of flair that we would come to expect or associate with an erotic thriller. So... I think I would come to the conclusion that just because there's a few sex scenes, does that make a a film erotic? I I would maybe push back against that. So for me, um, no, I'm not sure I would call it an erotic thriller. I think it's fairly successful as a sort of workplace drama, but it wouldn't quite fit into that category for me. It does seem that like the kind of the, I suppose like the Hollywood heyday of the erotic thriller was like born out of this sort of fear of like the rise of third wave feminism and of, uh, you know, the AIDS crisis of, you know, kind of of women's sexual freedom. So women entering the workplace in so many ways. And like those were the anxieties, a lot of those basic instinct disclosure, uh, fatal attraction kind of building on like the, the fear of the sort of liberated working woman. Do you think in some ways this is like in conversation with that? Absolutely. I think it is. Um, I think it's the way that the filmmakers treat those themes that has changed. As you said, you know, a lot of films from the 80s and 90s were a lot to do with fear of AIDS or fear of a threat to the nuclear family. And that's, you know, very clearly present in films like Fatal Attraction. But it was done in such an implausible way. The bunny boiler, the ice pick, you know, those films are designed to be sat hooting and hollering at what's happening on screen. And I think Fair Play is a film that is very much in conversation with anxieties we're having between, for want of a better phrase, Battle of the Sexes now. But it's much more nuanced. It's much more realistic. I think everything that happens in Fair Play is well within the realm of possibility. Maybe it's not quite as fun for that reason because it's done in such a, a nuanced way. But, you know, that it is still very much a genre that is in conversation with those themes and Fair Play definitely is a film that does that. I mean, there's the, as our resident representation of the male population. <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> <laughs> Go on. <laughs> How 
did you kind of view the gender dynamic between them? Because I, I watched this in Sundance and I remember seeing a lot of reactions um, online that were just like, they're both as bad as each other. And that's not the movie Oof. I watched. So I was wondering, how did you interpret it? Um, well, I, from, a, from a personal view, I, I kind of found it funny because it's, it's kind of this water cooler. It wants to be a kind of water cooler movie. Um, as Steph says, it kind of touches on the kind of um, battle of the sexes aspect. And I, I kind of laughed when I was watching this movie. I did enjoy it, but um, I kind of laughed because I'm in a relationship where I'm basically not the breadwinner. So, yeah, <laughs> so I'm, you know, being not not being the not being the breadwinner so much, but still earning a certain amount and and having a family and whatnot. What 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 happens in my world is I don't care. <laughs> like, not in that not in that way. Like this idea that the you know that men have in their head they have to be have these kind of weird hunter gatherers and all this stuff and some of that stuff that you see on with people that are all, who are always online. Like I don't care. Like my my thing is, are we earning enough? Are we paying our bills? Is my son all right? I don't really give a damn about some of the, some of this other stuff that's kind of going on there, um, because most of the time, a lot of the people who are having this com- these conversations aren't in the, <laughs> in the situations they seem to profess about. I don't think they are as bad as each other. I think one is worse because I think one is being really manipulative, um, and I think he, um, I think he, I will say he is clearly pushing certain buttons and there's certain things that he does certain websites that he's looking looking at and and kind of red pilling himself through through the movie which is quite interesting but i find it really interesting to see how quickly manipulated by power she becomes i don't think there's a good or a bad guy i think there's 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 certain shades of gray throughout and i think what's quite interesting is like he's kind of corrupted by what he uh, by what happens to him and his his job and, and the internet and whatnot. And she seems to be kind of more corrupted by the power of the system, the fact that she's actually good at it and someone's allowing her to to actually kind of let loose. But we are, it's a, it's a capitalist system that turns around and kind of breeds psychopaths. We, 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 it's constantly kind of said. So there is this element of her unleashing this kind of, not, psychopathic but this kind of really ruthless side to her and that's what makes the film interesting to me I definitely agree with what you're saying in terms of her being you know corrupted by capitalism and hustle culture I wouldn't necessarily view the film as her being particularly power hungry I think you know she's a woman that has studied really hard gone to an excellent university and worked hard to be where she is and I feel like the scene towards the end where, yeah, I don't know really how much to say, but there's a scene where I suppose she sort of sends her partner down the river in a sense and maybe stoops to his, his level in a sense. I feel like she does that because she sees no way out. I feel like she's been so um, beaten down by the systems in place, by her relationship, by her workplace. And I feel like she's sort of forced to forced into a bad decision because she feels like she has no other choice. I mean, possibly, but I think there's just... I don't know, I think there's that element of catharsis just that... I'm talking about the last seconds of the movie mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and I'm just one... It's, it's just something about the look on her face that I don't know. I get, I get the feeling that she's she's one in more sense of the word than anything else. I, I'm not entirely sure that she's so beaten down by the system because she's more than happy to kind of 
embrace it still. I could be completely wrong. No, I, 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 don't, I don't think you're wrong at all. But I mean, it's more coming to this film and it, like it's been, I've, I've like had it like just stay with me for quite a while. Like when I kind of go back and I reflect what this film was actually about, the stakes are incredibly low. Very. Um, but yeah, I was like, I, I, I was watching it like it was like a Michael Mann, like thriller, like, you know, like there was something about like what Chloe Dorman does with like the composition, with the edit, with the structure, where I was just like, I was on the edge of my seat. It's the, the tension, she rings out tension from her two performers. And I think it's really, really interesting. I think that's really, really interesting. There's obviously the bit where, um, obviously Emily gets the, the job and Luke hugs her and goes, I'm so happy for you. And you're waiting for the moment. And the moment is that they hug and you look at Luke's face and there's that kind of flicker of, well, what now? But in, a lesser, I think in a lesser film, it would be more pronounced. And in this, it's it's literally just a brief look on it, a, a, a really, really blink and you miss it look. And I think that's what I think the film is kind of really good at. I'm not sure if it's it's in the composition. I think compositions are quite, they're quite tight and lots of mid shots. And I don't really get too much out of it. I think it was just the way she kind of extrapolates these just elements of tension from her, from from the performance. I think she really kind of, just nails it there. I, I, I'm kind of like, yeah, I, I don't know what it is, but you sit there going, so what happens next? And, oh, she's a bastard. Or, oh my God, what's she doing? Like, there's just that element of it. Is this hedge fan going to short this stock? For apparently it's not going to go I think the tension comes not from who's going to, you know, who's going to get promoted? Is she going to lose their job? Are they going to break up? I think the tension comes from, oh no, what is he going to do to her? Because I think for him being professionally cucked is even worse than getting you know actually cheated on by her and I think what we just to circle back on what we started talking about and the sort of when you were mentioning being red-pilled and things he's being red-pilled and things like that you know the incel element for me worked the best when he spends money he doesn't have on this seminar about how to improve his life for me that was when sort of the the alarm bells started going and that for me was the interesting part and what kind of brought it into the modern day Oh, there's nothing more that I love than like a kind of typical leading man playing a deeply pathetic figure. And I would love to see an Alden Ulrich and um, Alexander Skarsgård in Infinity Pool duo of like, we are the loser men who are weirdly hot going on a little road trip. Um, but yes, let's get some scores on this. Uh, Steph, do you want to go first? Um, in anticipation, enjoyment and in retrospect. Sure. So in anticipation, I'm always here to watch and support a female-directed erotic thriller. I have logged on. I'm ready. I'm giving it a four in anticipation. I'm very excited. And I really liked um, Phoebe Dunover's performance in Bridgerton. I'm not so familiar with Alden Ehrenreich, but I was sort of very looking forward to it. So yeah, four in anticipation. In enjoyment, I think possibly a three, because as much as I appreciated the conversations it was having, I wish it was done in a way that had a bit more, you know, we can talk about serious topics, but if you want to lean into these genre elements, make it a bit more fun, make it a bit more visually interesting, pick up the pace. I don't think it needed to be two hours personally. And then in retrospect, I think a three as well for me. You know, it's a very interesting piece of work, but I don't see it as one that's going to stay with me. And one that sort of earns its its runtime. And as you said, Leila, I think it's quite thin on the ground in terms of plot and in terms of stakes. And I think that kind of kneecaps it in the end. 
Yeah, I know people are very upset often when festival darlings end up on Netflix, but I gotta say this seems about right. Leslie, what about you? What are your scores in anticipation, enjoyment, and in retrospect? Anticipation uh, two, I didn't know what to expect, so I was kind of treading water with it at first. I wasn't entirely sure. I just really didn't know what to expect. I kind of went into it as dark as possible. Enjoyment, I would say three. I kind of agree with a lot of stuff there. It doesn't have to be as long as it is. I think from a from a personal level it's really interesting drama but it needs to be sexier if it wants to be an erotic thriller and i don't think it is and i think there's two moments of um sexual aspects that are one's quite interesting at the start um the other one is i think we see it too much in movies and i think it's it's part of a conversation i think a lot of people are having anyway and i think it's it's not it's not sexy like that's the thing it's it's a it's an action of power. I genuinely don't know what you're talking about, but like all I can think of when I think of like the sex scenes in this film is just like this is a female director who still doesn't seem to know how periods work. <laughs> God, they're explosive, aren't they're they? They're explosive. They just it's like you sneeze and it's. <laughs> it was like the Shining corridor. I don't know what I was watching. <laughs> Well, you know, God bless her if that's what she that happens to her every lunar cycle. Um, but next up, it's the Exorcist Believer. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over seventy percent of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on LinkedIn.com/people today. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss plushcare.com slash weight loss a lot can happen in the next three years like a chatbot maybe your new best friend but what won't change needing health insurance united healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. The parents of a pair of demonically possessed girls are desperate for help and search for the only person alive who has had a similar experience. Not a spoiler to say, the person with a similar experience is Ellen Burstein, who was in the original Exorcist, which is now 50 years old. You know, the late, great William Freakin, like, you know, was often, I think, undervalued as a director, um, having made, like, that classic film. Let's say, I guess I'll start with you. Like, what's your what's your relationship with the original Exorcist? I've got a tale, but I'll let you start. 
Oh, well, like, like so many people, it, it was it was one of those films that scared me for for years. It scared me before I even watched it. It was because it was had such a dodgy kind of. It was barred from like UK release for so long until '99 when I actually kind of. It was one of my first DVDs that I bought and I watched it and I was truly truly thrilled. Really enjoyed it. I love. I, I really like the book as well. And I really like. I like. I like Blatty's um, film work in general. I I like. I, I personally say that The Exorcist, The Knife Configuration and The Exorcist Free Legion are the kind of real trilogy. And, Wait, it's in the books? Um, the the books and the film, sorry. Sorry, I apologise. Um, and I really, really got on board with the idea of someone like David Gordon Green doing it because I think it's one of those things on where I think there is something to be mined from some of the material. Unfortunately, this doesn't live up to it. It is an absolute dog's dinner. It's really bad. Like, god-awful. <laughs> so much so I'm kind of lost for words. I, I... Oh, yeah. No, but I, I mean, I'm not even with you that, like, I think The Exorcist book was bad. And I think, as a result, The Exorcist film, 50 years old, rest in peace, William Freakin, you were a genius, is a miracle. And this is... I mean, I don't want to say like I that. I I I I'm, I mean, I... I don't want to wish if there's anything to comfort yourself with the fact of William Frequent's untimely death, it's that maybe he didn't see this. <laughs> yeah, I think he he had a he timed it perfectly, and I I I feel like I should point out that I bumped into the lovely Leslie at the uh, screening, and we ended up sitting next to each other to watch this film. And the film itself was bad, but I felt like I should just give it an extra star rating because out of the corner of my eye. Every time Ellen Burstyn came on screen, Leslie sort of did this very confused hand gesture of why is she, why is she here and why do they keep cutting back to her? Which made me laugh. It was very funny. It was I, I zoned out because this is a massive cos. I just felt this was just a cosplay machine. They do things in it. They lift so much from visually from the original film, um, but they don't understand why it's in the original film. So it just I just found it utterly frustrating. And one reason is Ellen Button being so good in the in the original movie. And I and the the story about her coming back for this movie is told, it's online, have a look, it's a good story. But she's so wasted. And one of the things that really annoyed me is to have her kind of come on and say, I wasn't allowed into the, the, the original exorcism because of the patriarchy. Only yeah, for- people died, lady. Yeah, yeah like, just, they saved your kid. But it's not just that. Um, for me, that what really annoys me about that is just... I remember at the screening, there was this kind of weird kind of cheer and like, yeah, right on, sort of thing. And I was like, okay. And then we progressed to watch the very male filmmakers turn around and just waste this character all the way through. And it was just dreadful. Like, it was absolutely dreadful. And I, I found myself really frustrated. And the reason why I was frustrated, because it was... It kind of put that idea of uh, patriarchy in there to go, look, we're talking to you guys. Yeah, we're winking at the camera. Look at what we're talking about. And then they proceed to just waste the female character in there. They waste most of the female characters in there. You've got Anne Dowd in there. If you're going to have a, a, a movie about possession or grief or anything, and you've got Anne Dowd in there, come on, you can't just waste it in this kind of needless part. I thought I just found myself so irritated. I'm a Hamilton stan, so like actually just having Leslie Odom Jr. in here and like not taking the opportunity to have an exorcism based musical number. (laughs) Total fucking waste. (laughs) Steph, sorry, you were saying? I feel like we just have to 
talk more about Ellen Burstyn and the fact that <laughs> the sort of explanation they give is that after the events, because this is a legacy call, a word I hate and a concept I also hate. Um, but the explanation they give of sort of what happened between the events of the first film and now is that she wrote a book about her experiences with her daughter, Reagan, a book called A Mother's Explanation. Rubbish title. She writes this book and her daughter is sort of like, Mom, I can't believe you wrote this book about my life. And then they're sort of estranged. And that's sort of the emotional setting of Ellen Burstyn's current life. Again, younger lady, people died. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's just, it's just wild. And then I kind of don't want to ruin the scene because it's, it's the one, it's a terrible scene, but it's the one moment of sort of light comic relief in and amongst all of the other rubbish stuff. But in order to sort of keep Ellen Burstyn away from the action, presumably because she only signed on to do a certain number of days and because of her age, in order to keep her away, they just attack her very brutally and confine her to a hospital. And then to remind the audience that she's still a character, they just cut back to her at the most random moments in her bed with the bandages on her face. I suppose... um telepathically knowing what's happening at the exorcism that's happening down the road it's just it's just so bizarre such a bizarre use of the character as leslie said and to be fair like of all the injuries a person could have no spoilers it's not one that you come back from in terms of like what that does (laughs) oh no that that lady's done (laughs) she's she's finished yeah But I did think it was very interesting about how, like, essentially in the first film, which, you know, like 1973, we're kind of like looking, you know, 69 is the Manson murders, kind of like there's a lot of like the the early brewing of the satanic panic happening. This was a controversial, you know, film with the church originally. And, you know, we do have in the original, uh, you know, like a young girl on the cusp of womanhood like stabbing herself essentially masturbating stabbing herself however you want to like is it in her private parts with a crucifix and then in this film it's more like enacting hideous violence on another person but i was watching that because like there is that kind of reference of like what happens when a demonic girl gets her hands on a crucifix and i did feel that like 2023 you can't go there you can't have a girl kind of uh, doing what Freakin had someone do back then. I, I, I agree. I think Freakin kind of looked at the material, wondered what he could get away with and did it really well. I think he's, I, I think you were right earlier saying he was undervalued because I think he really did push boundaries where, where he could. I mean, he does it in cruising and he definitely does it in The Exorcist. And I think by pushing those boundaries, he kind of put forth a, a kind of moral question to the audience. Depending on what version you, you see of the Exodus, he kind of turns up and goes, oh, well, it's, it's the ultimate struggle, struggle between good and evil, like in, in intros and whatnot. And I, I kind of I kind of get that. And it's like, that is so, what she does is so kind of horrific. And I think we're kind of now in this, as a society, well, in terms of cinema, we kind of move away from that. And we're kind of cleansing ourselves away from that, so to speak. And again, this is one of the reasons I find myself really frustrated. At one point, a character, um, Leslie O'Dell's character, is basically asked to choose between his wife and his daughter. And the thing that I think what irritated me the most is 
having personally gone through tragic events and looking at stuff like that, I was like, well, how are you going to do this? How, what are you going to do in order to kind of give me that weight and give me that kind of emotional pull? I know it's a horror movie and I know it's, you know, we don't kind of look at horror movies in, in the same way as say The Exorcist now, but what are you going to do? And it doesn't do anything with it. It, it. it just really just makes everything kind of go flat and it's really kind of pathetically done and i was just like well this is it isn't it it's it's not if you're going to make this if you're going to have a kind of moral quandary you gotta do something to make me kind of look up and realize and grab me by the freaking testicles or or anything and it doesn't do anything it's it's just a a a, a, a naff film in that way and like i said i think it's just a it's a cosplay machine it turns around and mimics the shots of everything, but it doesn't even know why it's called The Exorcist. It doesn't understand why it's called The Exorcist. There's no danger, there's no shock, there's no surprise. It's rehashed cliches from the first film. They don't even have the creative verve to come up with their own iconic moments. They eventually recreate the head turning and and things like that. But, you know, why include that to make us point at the screen and clap like monkeys and say, oh, we remember you doing that in the first film. Like, no, give us something new. Prove your reason for existing. If the only reason you're remaking this film is because you have the idea of, oh, what if two girls were possessed instead of one? Like, no, that's not enough. But also, despite being different races, what if they turn the same hue? (laughs) (laughs) There's so much set dressing like that. As you said, Leslie, you know, the comment about Ellen Burstyn's character saying, I wasn't allowed in the room because of the patriarchy. And then, you know, there's lots of, threads that begin that don't end like um the the microaggressions from the white parents towards leslie odom jr's character you know we didn't know our daughter was friends with your daughter like all of these things are sort of peppered throughout but to to sort of to sort of no end it's it's a a film of half-assed attempts (laughs) it's a film of references it's a film and i think it's one of the biggest problems i think we have with a lot of film it's what it's this is why we don't call it content, because what happens with content, it just becomes references and memes and, and, and nothing else. It, it just is. So you can turn around and point and go, I know where this is from. And that's the worst thing. It's almost like the thing that we once loved was possessed by something nefarious and evil. <laughs> Leslie, do you want to do your scores in anticipation, enjoyment and in respect? Uh, so in anticipation, give it free because I'm always kind of interested to see what we can do with a horror movie um always kind of interesting to see what we can do with a remake uh, you know big fan of the thing so to speak um, big fan of let me in as well um but enjoyment i'll give it a one you kind of kind of went i kind of went in and after i realized that it was just playing the reference game i got very very bored very very quickly it doesn't it, it's ladenly paced and it doesn't seem to know what it's doing with itself and if you're gonna do a race swap at least you know be interesting with that and then uh, for actual verdict I, i'll give it a one steph what about you um i think in anticipation i would give it a three you know i've not seen any good less lego sequels i don't particularly enjoy the halloween trilogy although i do think that those films are better than this one if we're talking about david gordon green's attempts at doing this kind of thing in enjoyment it was a two i think the reason why we i assume most people listening will love the original exorcist i think the reason so many of us love that film is because of how visceral it is you can see the lumps in the pea soup vomit you can you know, really feel these practical effects and they're scary, they're horrible. And with this, just 
it was dark, it was dank, it was poorly lit. The, the effects were, were naff. It was just, there was no joy in, in watching what was happening. And, and also it just wasn't scary. It wasn't scary at all, which was very disappointing. And then in retrospect, I wouldn't say one because I feel like one is very much burn all copies. And I did think Leslie Odom Jr. was doing fine work given the material. You know, he's a very solid actor and he, he was doing good. the best he could. He is good. Bless him, he was doing the best he could. So I think, yeah, in retrospect too. Yeah, I um yeah, if 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 fair play was three point fives above the board, I think this is like one point fives across the board. The thing that I will say that like it really did give to me was I I ended up spending a huge amount of time in the car with my daughter today who's seven and I, I answer every question that she gives me and there's been a lot of exorcist believer buses going and she asked me what the exorcist was and I was just like, Well this was a you know a horror film 50 years ago and like she's asking what it was about and I said like, it was scary and she's like well, what happens and I says like well something bad gets into a little girl but don't worry that can't happen to you she was like well what, did she kill people what does she do and I was like no, she's mostly in bed she throws up on one <laughs> <laughs> point <laughs> Yeah, like, and, and like explaining the exorcist to her was a bit, maybe like realize the magic of like, of what a miracle that first one is. Like how, like, I couldn't believe that the sort of thing that I was plainly speaking out, obviously in like kind of vaguely child-friendly terms to her, was one of the most terrifying things I'd ever seen and like one of the most formative cinema experiences I've ever seen. So actually maybe I changed my mind once across the board, like that you take that. <laughs> Worth. <laughs> it's a primal, um, the original's a primal movie. I, yeah, really I think I think of, I think of the the line in it of like that the point is to make you despair, and maybe that's apt here because that's what this did. But at least our thrills are about to get a little bit sexier, or are they? Because next up, it's Film Club with disclosure. Tom Sanders is a senior executive at a tech company on the verge of releasing an innovative new product. Success is assured until a vamp from his past, Meredith Johnson, swoops in, stealing his impending promotion and then suing him for sexual harassment. Steph, this is the most bitches be cray film I have ever seen in my entire life. And it's, I very rarely get to choose Film Club, but I had seen this not that long ago and I was like, I need to talk about this with someone. (laughs) Thank you for your service. Yeah, what to say. (laughs) Um, I have seen this film before, but honestly, rewatching it uh, last week with my boyfriend, we had some drinks, we put it on, he'd not seen it. Genuinely one of the best bonding moments we've ever had because we were laughing like no tomorrow and that, my friends is entertainment <laughs> no but in all, in all seriousness yes it, it's not a very good film but I think it's important to situate it obviously it's a 90s erotic thriller but I think you had Fatal Attraction in the late 80s which was tapping into the cultural context but then in sort of 1991 you had the first publicized very well publicized sexual harassment case you had the Anita Hill Clarence Thomas case and, you know Anita Hill with this very beautiful young woman, very successful lawyer, and the whole world saw her being questioned by this all-white, all-male judiciary committee asking her insane questions about pubic hair on Coke cans and all sorts for the world to see. And I think that was really the first, you know, public case of sexual harassment in the workplace. And from then, you did get films like Disclosure, you got films 
like the temp, you know, a very crazy erotic thriller with Timothy Hutton and Laura Flynn Boyle about the temp from hell. Le- Leslie is laughing because I know he's thinking, oh God, <laughs> yeah, not, don't, yeah. don't talk about the temp. But, I, and then, sorry, so after the Anita Hill Clarence Thomas case, you had the next year, this big boom of women being voted into the House of Representatives. You had more women being elected to the Senate. And I think around this time, 1991, 1992, and then we get disclosure a couple of years later, there was a big focus in society and by proxy in erotic thrillers about sexual harassment, the workplace. Can women have it all? Can they be successful? Can they have a sex life? Can they be autonomous? Can they subdue men? And this film attempts to do something with this um, cultural soup that it found itself as the fly swimming in. Um, Is it successful? Who knows? But um, I'm glad it exists. (laughs) I'm genuinely glad it exists. It's an absolute riot. I mean, I'm very glad I'm not part of a culture of which it is like defining anything. (laughs) <laughs> like, let's, I've got to assume you've, you, this is not your first time to Disclosure I think I've watched Disclosure three times so yeah, glutton for punishment uh, <laughs> yeah uh, it's a weird one isn't it I can't remember if I, I can't remember what I read oh, there was something about Crichton I think saying he swapped the he swapped the gender uh, gender roles because there was things that once you once you swap the, the gender roles and have a man be kind of sexually harassed you could kind of bring more talking points or there was something along those lines that he he, he kind of mentioned. And no, I'm sorry, <laughs> maybe I need to read the book, but no. Um, and I think the reason why is just simply because instead, like I think this is where fair play plays really well, where instead of having any kind of shades of grey, Demi Moore is just straight up a bad guy. It's, it's, it's a, it's a, I don't know. They they've taken all these kind of things from what you would expect a, a man to do, and just kind of stapled them onto this uh, onto kind of, kind of a, a woman, a female character, and it, it just feels so wrong. And it feels wrong in this kind of um, irritating, short-sighted way. There's no complexity. Even though Moore does really well with terrible di- and terrible ma- um, material, like she she's good. She looks good. She she kind of walks with a stride. It could have been really interesting to see her kind of uh, play and manipulate certain things, but she it isn't. It's 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 really really thin on the ground. It's really thin gruel, and it's really irritating. Um, and Enrico Marconi's score was just awful. I'm sorry. That, oh, God. Maybe his worst. Uh, yeah, Maybe the, his worst. Think this is a master score. score. It's the master um, musician. And he he phoned it in. I'm sorry. He really did. It really, really bad. And Michael Douglas doesn't enlist any kind of sympathy. One of the things I like about him in Basic Instinct and Fatal Attraction is that he's a little bit guilty. He's always a little bit. He always looks, looks a little bit guilty. And what he does is very guilty. In Basic Instinct, you know, he's supposed to be a hero but he's an arsehole he's a dumb ass i like that wait some people think that michael douglas is a hero in basic instinct oh, i think so i think so do we need to do an extra podcast on this come on we can, <laughs> we, we might have to because i'm i I've, I've gone over too long anyway um, so um he there's something a little nasty about him in those movies and they kind of try and cleanse it all here and it's awful it's dreadful. I don't. He. I don't buy him as this kind of family man who once had a Roman eye sort of thing, but now it's all okay and everything, and it just looked silly. Um, and I think, I think it's interesting after watching something like Oppenheimer, where again you have this kind of disposition, which all this 
sexual exploits kind of laid bare, bare. And then you watch this and it's like, okay, yeah, what were we doing in the 90s? Why are we doing this so badly? Um, I, I just found it really, really, really bad. And then the virtual reality scene is incredible. <laughs> oh, my God. I just think more films should have their plot climax with Meredith Johnson, Demi Moore's character, coming towards them in a VR filing cabinet whilst Ennio Morricone's score goes... It's, it's, it's truly um, wild. It's like the lawnmower, man. It's amazing. <laughs> just great, great to see. I used to kind of like believe that like all films should kind of end with a musical number. Um, and now, yes, Steph, I'm converted that that is how all the films should end. I just think it's a really funny film to watch in the present day. Obviously, completely agree with Leslie. It's there's something rotting in the state of Denmark. There's like <laughs> something truly e- evil that lives in this film. It, it's bad faith in all of the ways that a film can be bad faith. But and yet, for my sins, it's just it, it's gloriously ludicrous. You know. When Michael Douglas, who we all know is just that guy, when he stands there and he says, why don't I be that guy, that white, evil male you're all complaining about? And I'm like, hello, you are. <laughs> and it's, and just, yeah, like all of the really dated techno babble and how he's messed up the production line of Digicom CD-ROM. And it's just so hilariously... 1992 or sorry i can't remember the exact year that was made 94 it's 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 so specifically that year (laughs) you know it's just amazing you can't you couldn't do cd-roms in 95 you definitely couldn't do it in 93 it has to be 94 um But I, yeah, I, no, I, 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 I do love that like we do think of Michael Douglas as having been in a million erotic thrillers. It's just the three. Yeah. It's just basic instant <laughs> fatal attraction and this one. But he just def- he I would I would it. um I would advocate for a perfect murder, which is yeah. a remake of Dialem for Murder, I believe. And it is, I think, an erotic thriller. I think it's lightly set. I I don't think it's that. Okay. We'll debate. We'll debate. (laughs) Okay. Okay, (laughs) 3.5 erotic thrillers we'll we'll agree on. I'll take that. (laughs) It's got, I I will say, it's got one line that I I had to laugh because it's just, it's so pointedly obvious of like, of what it's about. It's like, this is America. The legal system is supposed to protect people like me. And it's like the most richest man. It's, it's Donald Sutherland at that point, like the most richest man. Indeed it is, wealthy white man. That's literally <laughs> how it was structured. Oh God, what about when Michael Douglas has a nightmare that he's kissing Donald Sutherland and the camera <laughs> oh, sort of God. zooms you into Donald Sutherland's mouth as it's like gaping open. It's, it's truly just the best i was like we've lost something <laughs> as best. a culture i, I feel really bad because demi moore turns up in two films that we uh, we've done at um fatal attraction she turns up in this and um indecent proposal they're clearly aimed at being these kind of water cooler moment type movies and they're both really dull they're just not very interesting yeah indecent proposal is so much more boring than people think it is it's really long mm-hmm. it's really long, long. <laughs> so, what a bad ending like a, a, a like a like an auction for a hippo <laughs> I, I I will say yes. It wasn't and it isn't a, an erotic thriller in that way. But we kind of lean on these kind of weird yuppie movies as well. And we've also done Species, so therefore we kind of have a very 
I write Dwarf. hunter species. I will not see that being like oh, yeah, people people overhyping indecent proposal and sleeping on a species. Exactly. Just so we're not completely shitting on Demi Moore, I do want to advocate for the very good 90s film by Alan Rudolph, Mortal Thoughts, which she's in. She is yes. in some good, sexy-ish 90s films. Mortal Thoughts is a banger. Harvey Keitel, Bruce Willis. Jessica. I think she's absolutely... I think she's good in this. I think she's okay in um, Indecent Proposal. And I think she's very, very sexy in it. I think that's really, really cool. It's just that her character is just I think she's a talented actress, but in my heart of hearts, the thing that she's done that I love the most was like her Instagram content during the pandemic, where she like (laughs) gathered all of her extended family in what was the weirdest looking house. Which is like a ranch in like, I want to say Montana. And there was just like, I mean, it has to seem to be believed. There's sort of like a, a lot of like, like, statues of armors and carpeted bathrooms and people doing like oil painting classes anyway god bless you demi moore yes uh, you, the world is a better place for having you in in it oh captain my captain agree <laughs> but yeah we should wrap up now but we've got our one last thing so uh leslie what are you going to recommend to people that is not a movie to seek out this week if you do not, if you did like, sorry, um, Fair Play, or you're interested in something like Fair Play, I really recommend Industry. It's quite sexy. It's quite, you know, it might fill a hole where Succession is uh, now ended. Ooh, oh my! Maybe it's it's not <laughs> as good as Succession, Gosh. but it may fit. It may fill that hole in terms of. Um, Stop talking about filling a hole, Leslie. <laughs> oh, yeah, I'm sorry. Like, why have you got me on here? <laughs> Like, you know, like, I'm going to put my foot in my mouth by saying, you know, by making double entendres. Um, yeah, um, yeah. Industry. What can we have our holes filled by again? Please continue. Industry. Just watch industry. <laughs> Steph, <laughs> sorry, I need to stop. I, I or I will. I will just go down a terrible path of puns. Like Steph, what what, what would you recommend? Well, it is a semi-related to movie recommendation but it is a book I've just finished a book called Brian by Jeremy Cooper um and it's a really great book it's by Fitzcarraldo um published by Fitzcarraldo and it's about this guy who's quite lonely and has poor social skills who decides to go to the BFI one day and eventually finds this group of cinephiles that he finally feels like he belongs with and how he decides from that day on to spend seven days a week at the BFI and it's a very touching ode to cinema going and community and being an outsider and finding your people. And I just thought it was very beautiful. So, yeah, I would recommend that book. God, this is like how kind of tainted I am by your thing of like my first thought with that after you speaking, Leslie, I was just like, so would you say that the BFI fills a hole? <laughs> what? Where am I on here? Like, oh, just re- oh. <laughs> Jenny, thank you, Steph. I mean, like, I, I think that's so important. I've always been, like, a person that, like, went to the cinema by myself. I didn't think of it as a community. Mm-hmm. It was, like, it, it was something just, like, for me to go out and connect with the world. And I, I don't know why people wait for someone to be free to go out and kind of seek out a movie. Like, the, the movie is the person you're hanging out with. Yeah, going to the cinema on my own is my favourite thing. And if I do go with other people, if I'm at a festival, 
I just don't want to be asked about what I've just seen. Give me at least 10 minutes and a coffee and then maybe we can chat about it. I want to soak it all in. (laughs) Yes. And you were very kind to me one time after I came out of Bones and All and I was like in a near catatonic state of tears it was very early to be fair and I'd slept very little and I, yeah. you looked at me and I was just shaking and you were just like okay we'll give it some time <laughs> I thought um I'm gonna walk away and I'll talk to you later <laughs> very grateful I needed the space so if you've got thoughts on these films you can email truth and movies at tco london or tweet us at lw lies next week it's all scorsese all the time and we take a look at killers of the flower moon and reflect back on his legacy thank you very much for tuning in and if you enjoy the show please leave us a review and subscribe wherever you get your podcast truth and movies is hosted by me Leila latif and my guests this week were leslie pitt and seth green podcast is hosted by tco london and edited by bob stankers Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Mom deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.